You're listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. I'm Garrett Ashley Mullet, and I want to talk about everything. Welcome back to the Garrett Ashley Mullet Show. This is, of course, Garrett Ashley Mullet. And that was a metaphor for how you feel about me, no doubt. You faithful listener, (laughs) you tell me that you love me. And I say, I know, before I am dipped in carbonite and delivered to the bounty hunter. Uh, But in other news, today is Cinco de Mayo. Welcome back to the Garrett Ashley Mullet Show for episode 384, coming to you from Greeley, Colorado. It is yours truly, Garrett Ashley Mullet. Today being Cinco de Mayo, I thought it might be fun to look up what Cinco de Mayo is. I will admit, I just haven't really ever observed the day, and I don't know much about it, but then I'm from up north, and maybe it's just not as big of a deal to Montanans. It's just not not our day. I don't I don't know. But here's what Wikipedia has to say for those of you who were similarly unaware and ignorant on these things uh, as I was. Cinco de Mayo pronounced Cinco de Mayo. <laughs> I I just I read it in the same pronunciation. I'm sorry. Uh, in Mexico <laughs> Spanish for 5th of May is a yearly celebration held on May 5th, which commemorates the anniversary of Mexico's victory over the French Empire at, wait, did I just say umpire? I meant empire. French empire. Not the French empire. Uh, umpire. <clears throat> uh, this is not baseball. Uh, victory over the French empire at the Battle of Puebla in 1862, led by General Ignacio Zaragoza, the victory of a smaller, poorly equipped Mexican force against the larger and better armed French army was a morale boost for the Mexicans. Zaragoza died months after the battle from an illness, and a larger French force ultimately defeated the Mexican army at the Second Battle of Puebla and occupied Mexico City. More popular in the United States than Mexico, that's funny, Cinco de Mayo has become associated with the celebration of Mexican-American culture. Celebrations began in California, where they have been observed annually since 1863. The day gained nationwide popularity beyond those of Mexican-American heritage in the 1980s due to advertising campaigns by beer, wine, and tequila companies. Today, Cinco de Mayo generates beer sales on par with the Super Bowl. In Mexico, the commemoration of the battle continues to be mostly ceremonial. 
such as through military parades or battle reenactments. The city of Puebla marks the event with various festivals and reenactments of the battle. Cinco de Mayo is sometimes mistaken for Mexico's Independence Day, the most important national holiday in Mexico, which is celebrated on September 16th, commemorating the Cry of Dolores in 1810, which initiated the War of Mexican Independence from Spain. Cinco de Mayo has been referenced and featured in entertainment media and has become an increasingly global celebration of Mexican culture, cuisine, and heritage. And isn't that funny? Uh, not funny that there is this day, there is this holiday to celebrate. But isn't it funny that uh, a large part of why it became popular uh, outside of Mexico starting in the 1980s uh, was because uh, alcohol companies were trying to sell more booze. Uh, go figure. Uh, I will drink a toast to Cinco de Mayo uh, this evening, no doubt. But uh, yesterday, in other news, yesterday was Star Wars Day. And also, more importantly, most importantly to me, our son Daniel Joseph Mullet's 11th birthday. I worked, uh, not only did I work, I worked late. I worked uh, late into the evening. It was my last day of a seven-day hitch. And uh, I had alarms to build. There were alarms to build for a 15K pump skid on a new site that is being tested out right now, uh, probably actually right right now, this morning. And uh, those alarms needed to be ready for uh, what they were going to be doing in the field. And so I hope I got it right. I may not have gotten it completely right, but I uh, at least got it close and sent off notes to the two other guys that I work with on the integration team. And if something is not quite right, hopefully it's at least close and it's a matter of tweaking, not a matter of building whole cloth. But it being my son Daniel's birthday, his 11th birthday yesterday, my wife did what she typically does. And what I used to do, although I don't use Facebook in the same way anymore, and that's on purpose, and that's deliberate, and that's a commitment I have. Uh, but she did what uh, mothers should do and what mothers do, and it's right that they do it uh, when they have social media. Uh, she posted pictures of Daniel, and uh, she posted one picture of her with Daniel yesterday. They went out and got donuts. That's kind of a family tradition that we do is on our kids' birthdays. We take them to the grocery store or, you know, if we had a, a donut shop that we knew of, I'm sure there are donut shops close by that we could go to. But if we had one that we knew was especially good in this area, we probably would take them there. But we go to King Supers because I guess it's all the same to us. We're not donut connoisseurs or anything, but... Uh, we take our kids to the store and let them pick out the dozen donuts uh, to enjoy uh, all together as a family. Have that in the mornings. Yes, we'll have cake and ice cream and all that typically as well and have a, a favorite meal in the evening. But for whatever reason, 
we do donuts in the morning. I don't remember why we started that, how it started. I think it maybe was because as often as not, or more often than not, I'm working on their birthday. But if I can run to the store, if we can have a donut in the morning, then we start the day off with happy birthday instead of waiting until after everything else. I think it's good to do that and prioritize that on the front end. With this work, you know, I probably could have done that. I could have probably asked, like, hey, can I come in just a little later? Uh, I, I want to take my son to get some donuts. Probably should have done that. But such as it is, he woke up early yesterday morning. He was awake before I was because he wanted to see me on his birthday and see me before I went to work. And, and just in general, I want to take a few minutes to talk about Daniel. I've had him on this podcast. It's been a while. I need to have others of my kids. I need to get through. I need to get through all of our kids. Uh, Andrew might be a minute, but I need to get through all of them, having them on the podcast as guests. I really enjoy that. I think it's fun. I think they really enjoy it. I think other people really enjoy it. And, uh, you know, I, I think next up is Eli and then Josiah, and then we'll come full circle and we'll have, uh, John and Enoch on, maybe not in that order, but you know, you can go back several episodes and by several, I mean, uh, probably 150 episodes or something crazy like that, uh, to the one that I did with Daniel interviewing, uh, Daniel J. Mullet, uh, truck driver, because we were on this kick for a while where we were playing American trucking simulator and he was just like having a ball. He loved that game. I don't think he's played it quite as much here lately, but yeah, he, he's a funny kid. He's a funny and enjoyable and considerate and sweet and kind uh, boy. Uh, very in tuned with how the people in the room are doing and feeling. Very empathic, very uh, empathetic, very sympathetic, and uh, just a joy to be around. He has a way of uh, disarming people who are grouchy and grumpy and also encouraging and cheering people up who are feeling down. And he's just an absolute joy in our family. Uh, you know, 11 years ago, he was born at home. And it was uh, a home birth planned. It wasn't an accident. It was on purpose. It was deliberate and intentional. And yes, we knew that you know you you could have complications. You could have something go wrong uh, in the delivery process. But right then, where we were living was right in town in Hillsboro, Ohio. The hospital was just a few blocks up the road, just a couple miles up the road. And so if we had had an emergency, we could have taken Lauren up the road to the hospital. But we had no reason to believe we were going to have an emergency. It wasn't something that needed to be managed. We'd had Josiah and Eli at the hospital because that's just what you do. But then by the time we got pregnant with Solomon, Lauren got pregnant with Solomon more specifically. When we were expecting him, we just looked at it and we figured... You know why? Why? Why go to the hospital and get all stressed out trying to tell them again and again every time there's a shift change or you get some stubborn, persistent member of the staff 
you know, that these are your preferences. These are the things that you want and you don't want. Like, for instance, for example, um, you know, not everybody's going to agree with this. Some people might be offended by it. But one of Lauren's preferences was she didn't want any male physicians attending and she didn't want any male nurses attending. Now, she just didn't. And why should she want that? Like, does she need to? Does she, like, is this an egalitarian thing where you have to prove that you're uh, what, right? Like, so, she, so that was a preference that she had. And I don't know how many women have that preference. And I don't know how many women who do have that preference just kind of like, you know, stifle it because they don't want to be made fun of or ridiculed or whatever. But that was a preference that she had. And we knew that there were, you know, female physicians in the maternity wing at Miami Valley Hospital. And we knew that there were female nurses. And so we thought, like, well, that should be pretty you know, easy to accommodate if we just tell them on the front end, like, we don't want any male physicians or nurses. And by golly, we had to remind them both births. We had to remind them several times. And it was like, yeah, like if you have a hard time keeping that straight, you know, what else are you going to have a hard time keeping straight? Like, you're not instilling a great deal of confidence in us that uh, you're really paying attention. <laughs> and maybe... Maybe we could do a better job of uh, monitoring the situation uh, from home. And then we'll we'll come in if we have an emergency. But otherwise, uh, just stand by, right? And so, Solomon, we did end up contracting some midwives from Columbus, Ohio. And it, it was so early in the morning because that's a typical thing. Like, that's just part of the birthing psychology of uh, females of the species is that you, know, you, you don't want to have a baby when there's all this noise and activity and people bothering you and interrupting. Another good reason to have a home birth uh, right there is you can manage that. You can mitigate that. Well, in this case too, like, it, you know, it's not a conscious decision that my wife is making at 4.30 in the morning when she goes into labor to say, you know, I'm not going to call the midwives because I don't want them bothering me. But 4.30 in the morning, she just, like her body went into labor because the house was quiet and she didn't want to have a false alarm and call them and have them drive the hour to Jamestown, Ohio. And then it, you know, be false labor, especially that early in the morning. And so we waited until it was too late uh, for them to get there on time. You know, I I called, I called uh, once I realized, once I woke up, like, you know, I, I heard her uh, through the wall. She, you know, our bedroom was adjacent to the bathroom and she was in there and, uh, you know, breathing and, and such uh, and, and vocalizing, <laughs> I guess you could say to, to not get too, you know, uh, too detailed here, but, uh, you know, they ended up showing up 15 minutes late, I guess is, uh, what I would say to Solomon being born. And so then when it came time that we were expecting Daniel, you know, we talked about it and I said, man, like we still had to pay a pretty, you know, a pretty good sum, you know, to the midwives 
when Solomon was born. And I mean, it, we, we really didn't need them, uh, quite honestly. And so why don't we do the unassisted thing? And Lauren, she just didn't quite feel comfortable with that. And she's like, I don't know. I, you know, I would just feel better. I would feel better if we went with the midwives. And so then we set it up to where we met with the midwives for a prenatal appointment. And they suggested, have you thought about uh, going unassisted, actually? Because you guys did great. Like, you did absolutely fine. It went as well as it possibly could have with Solomon. Maybe you should try unassisted. And then Lauren was, <laughs> she was like, oh, yeah, well, yeah, if you say so. And meanwhile, I'm sitting there, because like, I went with her to the prenatal appointment. Just rolling my eyes, as you might imagine. But we ended up having an unassisted home birth with Daniel. That's how he came into the world. And I'll just tell you right out, I mean, it was a hard pregnancy, very, very difficult. It was painful and uncomfortable. And Lauren, I mean, just like, you could hardly walk. Like Something was getting pinched or pressure was being applied somewhere where it shouldn't have been or something. But she just felt awful the whole pregnancy. And the very moment he was born, like I could tell she just felt so much better. And truth be told, he has been a relief and a comfort ever since. He's just been a smiley and enjoyable and sweet member of our family. He he was born at a time and a circumstances. And this is really an important thing that I, I want to point out. He was born when we were already feeling a lot of pressure financially. I was trying to work uh, full-time night shift in Cincinnati, Ohio, driving an hour each way to work 12-hour shifts on my feet the whole time. The break room was a two-minute walk from the part of the floor where our department was, my department was. Five-minute breaks every two hours. You do the math. About the time that you walk there and walk back, you've got a minute, right? Like, you're not really getting a break. You're getting a bathroom break. So technically, I guess they're giving you your break, but it's not really a break. Money was so tight. I mean, every little, any little spending, uh, it was scrutinized. And we felt like just everything we did was going to be criticized or second-guessed or questioned. And it was hard. It was just, it was just plain hard. I, you know, I'm, going, I'm working full-time, night shifts no less, trying to volunteer with church. I'm working. I'm going to school full-time online trying to get my associate's degree, then finishing up my associate's degree. Then we find out we're pregnant again. And in part, we weren't surprised, but it was a matter of principle. You know, it it is possible to have principles and to say, this is what we're doing. 
and still grapple and wrestle with the ramifications. It's possible, I think, to at the same time be excited to have a child on the way and also scared. And it's possible, and and here's why I'm going this direction with it, it's possible for a lot of scared young women who find themselves pregnant in various circumstances to be okay if Roe v. Wade is overturned and abortion is no longer an option. It is possible for a lot of scared young men who find out that they're going to be a father for the first time or they're going to be a father again. It's possible for the for those young men to be okay. It's okay for you to be scared and also celebrate the fact that a new life has come into the world. You're pregnant. That new life is right now. Not potential, not someday maybe, if you feel like it, right now. That new life is right now. And you need to get to work right now. But by God's grace, you can do this. By God's grace, you can do this. Don't sit on your hands and say, the Lord will provide and do nothing. If you really believe, demonstrate that you believe by your actions. What you believe will present itself, will make itself known in how you respond and how you act and how you proactively prepare yourself. How you engage is going to demonstrate what you really, really believe right now. But I would just challenge you. I mean, my son, Daniel, he was the last one who was born in Ohio. Because here's the thing, right? Four boys, four boys, four sons, now seven, but then it was four. And we're already strapped. We're already in a difficult spot financially and even socially. And you wouldn't want it to be this way. You wouldn't think that it should be this way. But very often, the economics, your home ec is upstream of how people are going to treat you. It's just the way that it is. That is human nature. We, saw, we see somebody who's doing well materially. We see somebody who is in good health, well-rested, not stressed out, wearing nice clothes, driving a nice car, very confident in part because they believe it about themselves as well. I'm a winner, right? I'm a winner. I'm winning. I'm going to keep on winning. And so they do in part because certain things are just picked up via fashion. If we were all blind and couldn't go off of the visual cues, we might judge based on the things that they say. But even there, there's a confidence that comes into their voice by virtue of the fact that they're winning and they know they're winning at life. And the inverse is also true. You're wearing shabby clothes, driving an old beater, living in a house that you can't afford to maintain and all that starts to get to you and you start to get discouraged and frustrated. And that also has an effect on how people treat you. It just does. It just does. But for one thing, I dare say that 
Daniel being born was part of what pushed me to rise to the occasion when I found out from my Aunt Connie that my cousin Brent had been working in Williston, North Dakota for nine months or so, doing really well financially. They were struggling, he and his wife Natalie. I believe, I think they were struggling, maybe they weren't, but they weren't doing as well. He didn't go to Williston, North Dakota because they were just doing phenomenally well financially in Billings, I wouldn't imagine. But you should talk with him. And I'm feeling a lot of pressure. And so what do I do with that pressure? Got to find a vent. Got to find a relief valve. Or I've got to change vessels. Or I've got to reroute this. Or I've got to distribute it more evenly. So I find out there's lots of high-paying jobs. And if I move out there, find myself someplace to stay, start applying, I can basically write my own check. I can figure out what I want to do and do it. And so I did. And here we are 10 years later. Daniel was a toddler when I went back to Montana. I missed his first birthday. But I was out there and I was trying to provide. And I was trying to find a place to live. And I was trying to find a good job. And If we had only had three and stopped, I don't know that I would have. If we had been doing just well enough, just, just well enough, I don't know that I would have. And it isn't to say that I necessarily thank Daniel or I blame Daniel, but it is to say that I thank the Lord that we have Daniel for lots of reasons that we couldn't have known on the front end. We just couldn't have. It actually was a blessing in disguise that set the whole course of the rest of our lives in motion, that he was born when he was, in the circumstances that he was, and the fact that we were on hard times in no way negates what a blessing he is to not just us, but everybody else that knows him. For that matter, I don't know how in the world, some days even now, I don't know how we do it, but I don't know how in the world we would have done it to have eight children had I not moved back to Montana to find a job. And once we found a house to rent, brought my wife and children out after me, I don't know how we could have had eight children, except that Daniel being born spurred me on. I felt all the more pressure needed to figure something else out, needed to do something else because that wasn't working. Total quality logistics was not cutting it. $35,000 a year, I'm sorry, that's all we can do. Well, your model is broken. That's what it is. That, that's all you can do because that's actually all you want to do, truth be told. $35,000 a year salary was not cutting it, especially driving an hour back and forth especially getting pressured to be dishonest and abusive. No, I will not. And if you feel threatened by my refusing to treat people that way, well, I guess you're right when you say you don't see me being successful here because I don't either. I'm not going to adjust my character to be successful on your terms so that you stop trying to undermine me and start trying to work with me and support me. Not doing it. It's not worth it. What does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? 
Deuces. I'm out. Work overtime. We're going to pressure you to work overtime, even though your salary, even though you're actually doing hourly type work, and we're going to pile as much work as possible on you and pressure you to work extra. And then if you don't, we're going to tell you we don't see you being successful here. And we're going to pressure you to be dishonest and just do whatever it takes to make money for the company. And if you don't do it, then we're going to tell you we don't see you working out here. Going to give you the cold shoulder. We're going to exclude you. And then ultimately, we're going to try and encourage you to show yourself out. And so I did. And it's so good that I did. At most, and it's gone up and down because the oil and gas industry is volatile. It is. There's just no two ways about it. But at the most, at peak over the past 10 years of working in this industry, I have made quadruple, quadruple that $35,000 a year salary that I made at TQL and been much the better for it. Been out in all kinds of weather, yes, and loved it. All over the countryside, out in the fresh air and the sunshine, and loved it. Listened to hundreds of audiobooks and podcasts and countless hundreds of hours of music. I've had so many conversations, long, meaningful conversations with friends and family over the road and loved it. And now I work from home. I'm sitting here at my computer, the same computer that I work from the office with. I, When I'm working from home, I just plug it into these monitors and this mouse and keyboard. Got a little KVM switch. It switches back and forth. And I'm here and I'm home. I have a home office in Greeley, Colorado. And I podcast from here and I pay the bills from this computer and I study and I research and I write my books and I write my articles and I work and provide for my family. And I, I don't know that this is overstating it to say that had Daniel not been born, I don't know that Evelyn or Enoch or John or Andrew would have been born. I don't know. I don't know that they would have. I don't know where we would be at. And quite frankly, I don't want to know. <laughs> Maybe that's the key to contentment. You know, there are definitely certain things that nag at me from years past, decades past, where they come to mind every now and then, and I reevaluate them. And I wonder, did I handle that as well as I could have? Did I learn the lesson I should have? Do I think rightly about that? But I think it's the mark of contentment to say, if I had it to do over again, I would not have gotten married any later. I wouldn't have stayed at Cedarville. That was the right call. If anything, maybe I wish that I wouldn't have gone in the first place. But then here we've been watching Back to the Future <laughs> lately. We've been watching the whole series on our Saturday night movie nights. And we watched all three. And you think to yourself, this little change all of a sudden has a domino effect where this, 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 and this now turn out different. And you go back to the future after changing this little thing in the past. And the world is a very different place. And so maybe I wouldn't, if I had it 
to do over again. Maybe I wouldn't go back and skip Cedarville altogether. But I will advise my children differently. I will do that. No, I don't think you should go to university. No, I don't think you should go to college. Not at these rates. Not with these jokers running the show. We're going to use every cent we possibly can of this My Tech High money to teach our kids technical skills. And if at all possible, I think they should go to a technical school or at least do some kind of a training program from home that then they can take a test after high school, get a license or certification or start an apprenticeship or something in a technical field. I don't think they need a college education. I think all the liberal arts education they could want, they're getting and learning how to get for themselves right now. You should see the stack of books that we've got for this coming school year. Hmm, Do we want our boys reading Ben-Hur this year or A Tale of Two Cities? And we're going to read it with them and we're going to discuss it with them so they'll learn how to be conversant. There's your liberal arts education. But right now we have a lot of people in America who are freaking out at the thought, at the possibility, that when they or someone they are close to gets pregnant and doesn't want to have the baby, they will no longer be able to get an abortion. This is going to ruin their lives. For one thing, that's a godless perspective. For two, you're not just talking about your life. More to the point, if you were just talking about your life, that would be one thing, right? But abortion is not something you do with your body. Abortion is something you do with the body of your child. It is not your body, your choice. It's that unborn child's body. And insofar as you're the guardian and you're supposed to make the choice to protect them, you can't get more opposite, more of a dereliction of duty. You can't get more vile and villainous than aborting your own child. You just can't. I, you, you, you are being godless and you need to repent because destruction is in your future if this is the path you're committed to. You are on the path to destruction and it doesn't matter how many people agree with you. It doesn't matter how angry and whipped into a frenzy the mob is that wants to tear Justice Alito limb from limb, that wants to abort five conservative Supreme Court justices. What you're talking about is murder, and you are lawless. And the Christian response is not to say, well, hey, let's talk it out. No, the Christian response should be that the governing authority does not bear the sword for nothing. Some homeless guy rushed the stage and tried to attack comedian Dave Chappelle in Los Angeles yesterday or the day before. I think it was the day before. He was doing some kind of a Hollywood Bowl comedy sketch bit, what have you, performance. And the bodyguards messed that guy up, snapped his arm. Like he was swollen and beaten and in just terrible shape. But he was attacking an unarmed Dave Chappelle, threatening him, needed to be neutralized. I would say he was effectively neutralized. This whole abortion thing, please hear me. The most compassionate thing you could do for 
some young couple who finds themselves pregnant and scared is not insist on their right to have an abortion, not encourage them to get an abortion. The most significant thing you could do, quite honestly, is pray for them, pray with them, tell them you're praying for them. Help the young man get a good job. Help him to be up for the task. Give him some ideas. Give him some counsel. Not pile on counsel, not pull washer I'm going to dress you down and unman you and emasculate you for all these folks to see. No, no, that's not helpful. You are destroying that young man's ability to provide for his family holistically by destroying his confidence at just the time when he needs it most. Stop it. Somebody wants to get all tough and macho. Why? Because the people who actually have money in your congregation want you to talk that way because they have grand designs for their kids because they want to look very virtuous. You are burdening young people and you are pushing them out. You're not lifting a finger to decrease their burden. And then when you do get gentle and comforting, it's very self-indulgent. How spiritual you are, how mature you are. I'm going to do you a solid, and I'm going to tell you straight up that it's one thing to say, here are my principles, and I'm speaking personally. It's one thing to say, here are my principles, and this is what we're going to do because it's the right thing to do. It's quite another thing to say that on the front end and then be totally, without a doubt, resolved that you made the right call and you're doing this the right way and you've got the right idea of it and you're executing sufficiently well all the way through. Those are two very different things. And actually, I think that's part of the struggle. That's part of what it means when Jesus says that we're supposed to pick up our cross and follow after him. If we're Christians, if we are Christians, we're supposed to pick up our cross and follow after Jesus. And what does that mean? Well, that means you are embracing suffering if suffering is just a part, it's an unavoidable part of obeying the Father's will. I'm going to obey the Father's will, and that means I'm going to resist temptation to sin, and that's going to suck sometimes because it would be more convenient to be not virtuous right now. It would be more convenient and more expedient from a material standpoint, from a social standpoint, from a financial standpoint, from a professional standpoint, if I bent the rules here or if I just ignored what God says on this issue. And it's I, I'm going to suffer. I'm going to suffer for righteousness if I do the right thing here because this, 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 and this person who can weigh in on my success at this institution or in this group or this organization or this community is going to not like it. And through active and passive means they're going to make me pay for it. They're going to express their displeasure by trying to sabotage me or by withholding support that I was expecting and needed, actually. I don't say this to put myself on a pedestal. I say this because I hope that it's an encouragement to you young men, and I hope that you're walking into life with eyes wide open. I think I can help you by giving you a heads up here. 
Don't do it exactly like I did it. The Lord's got a plan and a purpose for your life that is unique to you. He's equipped you with certain gifts and abilities, certain things that you are more aware of than other people. And yes, that can get you into trouble if you rely on that too much, if you lean on your own understanding. But you can use that for God's glory and for the benefit of yourself and others if in all your ways you acknowledge him. He will make your path straight. He will provide. He will watch over you. Yes, there's suffering. I'm not going to lie to you. There is suffering baked into it. But you know what? The struggle is the glory. (laughs) There's this great movie from the 90s, The Ghost in the Darkness. I love that movie. need to watch it again. But there's this missionary character who at a certain point is helping to build these fences, makeshift fences of thorn bushes to try and keep these two Savo man-eating lions out of the camp of the railroad construction company. And after a full day's work of it, his hands are just tore up and bloody. And he's washing his hands and he's looking at them. Just a big smile on his face. His mom always insisted that he be so careful with his hands because she wanted him to be a great pianist. And you could tell, like, his his face, like, he's just lived a softer life. He's not a rugged, manly man. But you could tell also, too, that he's just thrilled with himself. He's just tickled that he got his hands dirty and he got them all scratched up. He did work. He expended himself in a noble cause, in a virtuous cause. He did something worthy of being called manly. And he's thrilled. There's this one back and forth, too, that's just very amusing. Because the same actor, I don't know the name of the actor, but the same actor who plays Theoden in Lord of the Rings, great character. Like, such a great character, by the way. But the same actor who plays Theoden also plays this doctor who's very agnostic, if not atheistic, who is there treating these men as they get sick or they get, you know, attacked by lions or whatever. And there's this interplay where (laughs) they're just kind of sitting around chatting, making conversation in the evening. And the missionary says that when he first came to Africa, his goal was to convert the whole continent to Christianity. And now that he's there, he has decided to set his sights on something truly difficult, truly impossible, more impossible than converting the whole continent of Africa, just converting this doctor. <laughs> and there's some witty remark about, you know, good luck or something like that. And the missionary smiles and shrugs. He says, the struggle is the glory And it's a great line, right? It's a great movie, but it's a great line. I wish they made movies like that still, but the struggle is the glory. We have a whole lot of young people in this country who have really been poorly led and misinformed by their elders. There's a, a, a chapter of Isaiah 
that I talked about a while back in an episode. I did a whole episode just about this chapter, but that was September 11th, actually, not coincidentally, 9-11 of last year, 2021, episode 212, Isaiah chapter 3. But I talked about how one of the judgments, one of the components of the judgment that God pronounces on Israel because Israel has rebelled against him, thrown off his commandments and his restrictions and his prohibitions and his promises and his protection. He is giving the nation over to judgment. And one of the things he says is that their guides have misled you. They have swallowed up the course of your paths. And that's where a lot of our young people are at. This is not yet another rant we've heard too many of, where older generations exalt themselves. They puff their chests out and make much of themselves. uh, You know, that so often smacks of not just pride, but also insecurity. Like you, you feel so threatened by the younger generations coming up after you that you just can't help tearing yourself down in front of them or tearing them down in front of you. You feel so threatened. You know, it's, it's a kind of psychological and spiritual abortion. You would rather destroy them than see them succeed as part of you succeeding. Shame on that. But so often also, these monologues that older people will launch into about the younger generation. Oh, these, you know, young people these days are just crazy leftists and oh, it's, the, you know, it's the public schools and it's this and then it's that. Stop. Stop it. Are you owning your contribution to the young people turning out the way that they are and have? What part did you play in the young people of today being the way that they are? It's an important point that needs to be made. When it comes to young people in this country now, where do they find themselves? You know, if they were in high school, they missed out on a couple of years, a couple of pivotal years. Their instruction may have been minimal. Their ability to concentrate on their instruction may have been non-existent. What instruction they did get in some quarters was radically left. We're talking out and out, tear it all down, burn down the country, and let's institute communism. Radical. And their parents, meanwhile, many of them, just woke up to the fact that progressives have been running our education system for a 100 years and making us increasingly statist. And what I mean by that is causing more and more and more Americans to view government as God, to say that there is no God. It's almost like the Shahada in Islam, except instead of saying there is no God but Allah, we say there is no God but government. And (laughs) Karl Marx is his prophet? I don't know. Every analogy breaks down at a certain point. But these young people, they have an option here. They can despair, 
but they don't have to just despair. And they also don't have to buy into this lie that it's the older generations who messed everything up, and so let's make war on them. You know, I, I think we should be very, very concerned about the shoe being on the other foot at a certain point with the abortion mindset, raising a whole generation of young people who view government as God and also do not have any respect for the dignity of human life, who think like their parents and grandparents did, but harder and even faster and stronger in that direction. Because at a certain point, the demographic crisis is going to cause this inverted population triangle where all the older people are way outnumbering the younger people because we stopped having children. We stopped replacing ourselves. We aborted 60 million of our young people and used birth control to keep ourselves from having tens of millions more. You know, if the young people raised in that mindset by parents who justify that mindset, if they come to an option in 10, 20, 15 years where it's either euthanize their parents or we're all miserable, we're just falling apart economically because we're trying to support all of these elderly people without enough young people working in the economy to do it. A logical consistency is going to see a lot of these same folks who were so about living their best life now and only having a couple of kids and letting the public schools raise them. A lot of those folks of that generation who helped to keep Roe versus Wade, I mean, to get it in the first place, but then to keep it, a lot of those older folks are going to find themselves being aborted if we don't change our thinking. But that is to say, we have another option. We have another option besides tearing ourselves apart and tearing one another apart and destroying ourselves. We don't need to be invaded by an outside force to destroy ourselves. We are all right here. We have everything that we need. It's like the trouble in very leftist, hippie-infested places. California, Colorado, western Montana, for instance. Where the hippies don't want any logging whatsoever. They just love these forests in a state of nature, right? It's very similar to, <laughs> it's very similar to the way that they <clears throat> prefer society to be. They love this state of nature <clears throat> until <clears throat> what you find is all that dead growth, all the beetle-killed trees that you refused to allow anybody to clear out and process into furniture and building materials for homes and such like that. All of a sudden, that catches on fire in a dry year. And all of a sudden, our firefighters are unable to put out the blaze. And all of a sudden, not only is the whole forest burning down, good trees, live trees, along with the bad trees, the dead trees, but also our businesses, our factories, our homes, our schools, our fitness centers, our churches, like everything. It's like that with the cultural components if we don't change our minds. But we we do have the option, by God's grace, we do have the option to change our minds. You know, I wonder to myself sometimes whether some of the lessons that I learned 
doing Kairos prison ministry and being a table servant shouldn't be instructive with regards to all of what I say on this podcast and in blogging and in writing books versus just the very fact that my family is a testimony. My children being a blessing up and down the street is a testimony. Us having this many children is a testimony. Don't grow weary in doing good. Press on. Now, we've had a rash of disturbing interactions here over the past couple of years with some kids in the neighborhood. And I've talked about this before, but a more recent disturbing example came just this week where uh, a young gal, and I say young, but uh, I would guess middle school age, told our son John to cross the street while a car was coming. And she knew that there was a car coming, I think. And I don't know what game she was playing, and I don't know why she would think that that was funny, but John did it. And then Evelyn had to run out into the street and stop him because Evelyn was with him. And then this older girl laughs at John and calls him a dumbass. And I hear the way she's interacting with her little brother, tormenting him. And the parents are not engaged. They're not listening. They're not paying attention. Now, the same parents have told my kids, hey, we really like you guys playing with our kids because you're such a good influence. You guys are so well-behaved. You're so polite. You're so mannerly. But I'm looking at this and I'm thinking like, yeah, my, my kids are being parented. That's why. You know, we had another instance where shortly after we moved in, another uh, kid in the neighborhood, uh, a boy this time, kept wanting to come over to our house and hang out. And at first we were like, okay, yeah, that's cool. Like you can come over and hang out. But then he stopped taking no for an answer if it wasn't a good time for us. So we would say no. Uh, right now, like our kids are doing school or they're doing their chores or they just can't play right now. And he was sneaking into our house. And all our boys would be outside maybe playing because the weather was nice. And then we'd find he's just down in the basement. And then we're finding out that, and he's telling me like unapologetically, and he's all of like 10, that his heroes are Jason Voorhees and Freddy Krueger. And that is to say he's allowed to watch horror movies at like 10. And I'm looking at his way of relating to his younger brothers. And there's something cruel and harsh and mean about all of his interactions. And I'm looking at the way he's engaging with my kids. And if he thinks they're cool, then he gives them the time of day. But otherwise, let's just say I don't want my younger kids alone with him. And so we ended up saying, like, no, like you, you will stay out of our house when we tell you you can't come over right now. You will. And I, I had my boys handle it in part because I figured that would be a little more even-keeled, a little more one-to-one. But I look at that and I think to myself a couple things. One, what in the world are we doing with our kids? You know, the same boy, he was writing 
a little electric uh, motorized toy car up and down the street with his brother, again, shortly after we moved here, within a few months of us moving here, and making joke like he was going to run over our youngest kids and our neighbors two houses down, uh, their youngest kids. And then what do you know? He's making a joke like he's going to do it. And then he actually does like run over my son Enoch's foot. And so Monica, two houses down, she tells him like, you, you have got to take that across the street to your side of the street. We've got little kids playing here. You can't be running them over. Like that's not okay. Well, then he goes and tells his dad. And of course he's, he's going to present it only in the most even handed of ways. But he's expecting his dad to weigh in in a certain way. That's part of why he's going to go to tell his dad. He's not, here's the tell. He's not afraid of his dad finding out. He wants his dad to know because he knows that his dad's going to take his side. And there's the clue. There's the tell. His dad's contribution was to step out onto the front porch and literally, I kid you not, yell down the street that accidents happen, right? Accidents happen. Can't it be windy sometimes? Can it? So I tried, because yeah, I'm like I'm not even in the middle of all this. I didn't see it happen. I just heard about it after the fact. In part, I heard about it because I heard <laughs> this neighbor yelling down the street out his front porch. So then I go out to investigate and find out what's going on. And I was just like, I was over it by that point. And, and also we had just had a miscarriage. And so it's like... I just, I can't even deal with this right now. And I don't even know that I dealt with it as well as I possibly could have, but I did. I go across the street. I I did deal with it. Went across the street and I said, hey, listen. Only I couldn't because he didn't come to the door. I would have said, hey, listen. But I rang the doorbell and knocked on the door. Somehow he could hear it when it was his son coming to complain about the mean neighbor lady stopping him from running over small children. So, somehow he could hear the door <laughs> when it was that, but, you know, the man across the street knocking and ringing and standing there for like a good two minutes straight. Nope. Can't hear it. Did you say something? Our kids can be a blessing or they can be a curse. We can be a blessing through our children, or we can be a curse. What is our mindset with these things? Are we thinking along the lines of God providing? Are we trusting in his provision? Or are we leaning on our own understanding? Are we thinking to ourselves, hey, whatever it is right now, that's all it's ever going to be? Well, when times are good, that can be an exhilarating thought. That's part of why winners are so compelling. They're, they're winning right now. Well, they're always going to win. Better follow them. They know where they're going. As the old adage goes in business, however, nothing fails like success. <laughs> That's the trouble. You know, you're going to have rivals and you're going to keep doing the same thing because it keeps working for you. But at a certain point, you're going to get complacent and a rival is going to say, I've got this guy's number. He always does this. Next time he does it, I'm going to be ready for him. 
He's predictable. And then when you stop winning, when you thought you were always going to win and you don't know how to handle it, oof, that's when it pays to be humble. But it also pays to take an inventory on what you can affect and what you can't. Jesus says, don't worry about tomorrow. Sufficient for the day or the troubles therein. But he also says, there's wisdom in many counselors. And sometimes that wisdom takes the form of a very poor argument. And you hear that and you say, well, that's all there is to it. Like, thank you, next. I'm going to kind of cross that one off because that was pretty weak. And then you hear a strong argument for this part of it. And then a strong argument for that part of it. And a strong argument for that part of it. And you come up with a plan. And I think that's where like, we can't, we can't think to ourselves that Roe v. Wade being overturned, provided the left doesn't assassinate the Supreme Court justices and launch us into a civil war, which they might. And if they do, it's on like Donkey Kong. But if the overturning of Roe v. Wade proceeds apace, like we conservatives, Republicans, family values types, God and country types, we cannot imagine that that is it. No. First and foremost, take back your kids. We've established we shouldn't murder them. Great. What's next? How about providing for their future? How about fixing the economy to where $100 in wages today isn't worth the equivalent of $90 a year from now? How about fix the economy and do that for the children? How about take the education of your children back, parents? You find you've got these labor-saving devices. You're able to work from home. Homeschool your kids and discipline them and tell them no when they're doing things that dishonor God, dishonor one another, and dishonor themselves. Tell your children no. And they will thank you for it. And they will know that you love them. Correct your children when they're wrong. And don't let them just hang out with anybody. That's another thing. You know, this whole my children need to be missionaries thing, I reject that. I reject it when it comes to some kind of a perceived imperative that I send my kids to public school. I reject it when it comes to all the kids up and down the street being able to play with my kids and hang out with my kids. No. My children are not missionaries, first and foremost. My children are children. And if they're a good testimony to godliness, to the goodness of God, praise God for that. But they're not first and foremost missionaries. They're first and foremost little men and women in the making. Well, men and a woman, a little woman. But I, my kids are not missionaries. My kids are kids. My children are children. This is... <laughs> This is where I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to confuse people because I just said in recent episodes, and I will continue to say, like, I don't do the baby talk thing. We just try and use big words, so-called, and unfamiliar words because that's part of how they're going to develop a vocabulary. We're going to talk about abstract concepts because that's part of how they're going to cultivate critical thinking skills and broaden their horizons. But my children are children. My children don't need to be parenting the kids next door or across the street, if they can be a good godly influence in addition to, as a supplemental to 
those kids' parents training up their children in the fear and admonition of the Lord. Well, praise God for that. And also, too, <laughs> here's the other piece of it. I don't want my kids hanging out with kids whose parents are not going to tell me when my kids are misbehaving. Actually, if if I hear that my kids are only ever so well-behaved all the time, like never do anything they shouldn't, never say anything they shouldn't, like if I hear that, I'm like, well, <laughs> I'm glad you think so, kind of. I'm kind of glad. <laughs> For the most part, like I don't want people to be hypercritical of my kids. Don't get me wrong. That's worse. When my kids can do no right because somebody has unrealistic unrealistic expectations or they have a problem with me or they just don't like Lauren or what like that boy howdy that is a that is a quick trip to my bad side like you've heard of mama bears well this papa bear like don't even but I also don't want to hear that my kids only ever do and say what is correct because that's part of that's part of my job as a parent is to refute that impression they're not always correct that's why they need correction if we think that they're always correct and their default is correct we won't correct them and then we will be doing them a great disservice and we will be neglecting our duty to them before god and our duty to god first and foremost god's given us these children they're actually his children first and foremost as are we and so are we behaving according to that paradigm. If we are, that's no guarantee that everything's going to be sunshine and rainbows and lollipops and, you know, sweet smelling, you know, goodness and happiness all the time. No, no, no. There's definitely going to be bumps in the road. There's definitely going to be thorns. There's definitely going to be issues that need to be addressed. Absolutely. But by God's grace, God will bless that. God will bless that humility. It is as far away from humility as you can get to say, my child never does anything wrong. And you're actually teaching your child to lack humility if you allow them to believe that they never do anything wrong. Everything that they think and feel is always correct. And to say otherwise will damage their precious fifis. I mean, self-esteem. And Dr. Spock said so. Dr. Spock, by the way, his son committed suicide in adulthood. So maybe Dr. Spock didn't quite have it figured out, this whole connection between self-esteem and health and success later in life. Hebrews in the New Testament talks about the father loving his son, his heir, by disciplining him. It's a false choice to say, I either love my son or I discipline him. It's a false choice. No. If you love your son, you will discipline him. If you love your son, you will discipline him in a certain way to give him a good life. That's the big idea. I I don't mind at all if I end up being friends after a fashion with my kids when they grow up. I don't necessarily want to be their friends right now. <laughs> Because they need they need a dad. They don't need just another friend. They don't need me to be just another friend. They need me to be their dad. They need me to look out for them. They need me to remind them to clean their room. They need me to remind them 
to talk to their brother and their sister with respect. They need me to remind them or to tell them in the first place. That's all the time I got for this episode, though. I got to run. My wife is messaging me, telling me that she's got breakfast for me. And I've got a call here in about 12 minutes, cutting it close, with a lender to see what it would take to get some financing to buy a home here in Colorado, whether she would advise that, given our circumstances. Can't hurt to talk with her. Can't hurt to find out. Uh, might not help, but, but it can't hurt either. <laughs> so we'll see how that goes. As always, thank you for listening. Until next time, God bless. You've been listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. For more content like what you just heard, subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify. Also check out thegarrettashleymulletshow.com to subscribe to email alerts when new episodes are published. As always, you can reach me with any comments, questions, complaints, objections, or insights at garrettashleymullet at protonmail.com. Thank you.